Hey, welcome to Cobblestone, y'all. Uh, my name's Andrew Holsworth. I am the lead pastor. That's not as important uh, as what Jesus is doing here. And so regularly, uh, we really push into the idea that Jesus is not white or American. <gasps> I know, shocking. Uh, and so we, do, we, we actually support a lot of missionaries. The money that you gave today, uh, a, a, a sum off the top, goes straight to missions. Because we believe God is not a God of... Uh, Oxford, Ohio, God's a God of the nations. And Jesus died to save a people of every race and tribe and tongue and nation. And so we have a couple here today, and I love them. I don't know them that well, but their names are Paul and Laurel Morgan. And so I'm going to invite them up. And if you would help me invite them up, here they are. Yes, that's, yep. They're going to tell you about what they do. They're going to tell you where they are. And and then we're going to pray for them here in a bit. Your pastor got me all emotional right before I had to get up and talk. Um, Good morning, Cobblestone. We are so grateful to get to be here with you this morning. I am a Miami alumni and a Cobblestone alumni. I graduated Miami in 2005 and attended Cobblestone all during those years, and I was baptized here as well, actually, in Houston Woods in warmer weather. Um, So here's a picture of our family. We're Paul and Laurel Morgan. We've been um, serving in the Democratic Republic of Congo doing uh, Bible translation with Wycliffe Bible Translators. This is our little crew there. Um, We've got three kids, um, seven, five, and two. And the map is to help you see a little bit uh, where we live in Africa. It's right there in the middle, um, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we've been there for over seven years now. And... um, In the country, there are over 200 languages spoken, and over half of them have no portion of Scripture translated in those languages yet. So um, that's what's really on our heart for helping um, the people in in the Congo. In Paul's role, we have a slide that shows most of his day-to-day is like this, sitting around a table, lots of computers and Congolese translators, and they are, they've translated portions of scripture, and Paul is a translation consultant, and they are going through verse by verse to make sure everything is accurate, it's natural, it, um, nothing's added, nothing's taken away, and um, they're just hoping to get the, the high-quality translation in the end. And many of the teams that we've been working with are completing their New Testament, so we have a picture of one of the teams, the Lika team. They just completed um, all of the translation and the technical checks, and here they are holding the first printed copy, the first printed draft of their New Testament, and um, they're, yeah, it's such great news. Their um, printed translations have arrived at the border, so we can just pray them through um, some of the red tape and um, people asking for a lot of money to get them into the country. So um, let's just pray they get into the language community's hands smoothly um, in the coming months. And um, there is also a celebration for another language community, the Tembo. They celebrated receiving their completed New Testament um, last year, and I got to attend the celebration. It was um, just such a joyful thing to get to attend and um, exciting that these communities in Congo, several of them are getting their New Testaments but there's still many, many left. And the next one, um, we have been living on a church compound, and we've had the opportunity to lead a Bible study group because we, um, we, what we see in Congo is because of the poverty, there's a lot of um, just a lack of access to good education, and so the result is that people are very easily led astray. And so God's really put on our hearts to just to help people grow in discipleship and um, grow in spiritual discernment so they can discern for themselves when they're hearing teaching, 
whether it's good or false. Um, so we, you can be praying with us for that in Congo, for people to grow in their spiritual discernment. And Paul's going to share for a moment about another um, exciting development. We also got to see a God work a miracle with a, where we helped organize a training for audio recordings. It, we got four different language communities to come to a training where they learned how to record scripture and also to record uh, scripture songs so that they could be broadcast out in their hard-to-reach areas. And it was a miracle because uh, even a month before it, we wondered if we'd have to cancel because of uh, security issues. But God let it all take place in those hard-to-reach areas. And we're excited about those kind of new opportunities to reach people where uh, they can hear the word over the radio. And we just want to end by saying thank you um, that you've been supporting us through your giving all the way through my entire missionary journey, even when I first started going on some short-term trips as a college student in 2003. So I'm just so grateful. We have so much history together, and um, we're thankful for your partnership because we are a team, and we're doing this together. And so we're just um, grateful for you all. And I wanted to say that we have um, prayer card pictures. If anybody wants one, just find us in the, the lobby afterward and get one from us. And if you'd like to receive our newsletters, um, just get me your email address or your contact info, and we can stay in touch. Thank you. So I want to pray for them, and I want you to join me in praying for them. That's, that's Paul, uh, and that's Laurel. Okay, cool. Jesus, you are good. Bless this couple. As I prayed for service, Lord, shelter them, overwhelm them with your goodness. May your favor be all over them. I pray that doors would be opened and doors would be shut, that Jesus, you would lead every step. They don't need to know a year from now, just the next step. Show them the next thing. And where to go and give them boldness from your Holy Spirit. Give them wisdom and discernment above and above and beyond from heaven. Guard their kids. Hide their kids. And knit them together that nothing could come between them. Bless them entirely. You are the God who was and is and always will be. And you said go and they went. Bless them in Jesus' name, your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys. So if you want to talk to them, just go out in the lobby after this. Give them a big old hug. Hold, hold them almost too long. They love it, okay? Uh, we, we are in a series called Christmas. Uh, it's all about Jesus. But I actually have the kind of privilege today to introduce someone who's, that's not me that's talking, and it's, it's good for my soul. Uh, I'll say this. This man, I love. And I wept more over him in the last month than him most of my life. Uh, and I say all that because sometimes when I say, hey, I'm not preaching, and this is not, I feel like people are like, oh, no, this is, if I could explain the circumstances to God to this moment, the Lord is doing a work in this church. He is. And it's not contingent on me or one of you. It will take all of us and more than one shepherd. And so if you would, would you welcome John Johnson up here? There it is, Noah. Now I can say, hey, Cobblestone. Hey. I realized there was a point last Sunday, a particular moment, when I realized that the timing of me preaching today was going to be a little awkward. It was immediately after Andrew had said, what if this were the last time I got to talk to you, Cobblestone? 
Oh, next Sunday, it's going to be a little bit. Uh, No, the plan was in place already. Nothing has changed in the staff structure or any of that. Okay, so we got that little bit of clarifying housekeeping done right there. So we got that. What I want to get you into today, right this morning, is there is a question that's been... You know, the question that seems, I don't know, it seems almost mundane, or, or, or who would ask that, but I've been eager to get you in on the discovery process with God helping us. And the question goes like this. Historically, how, how have people been made aware of who Jesus really is? What kind of methods has God used? And, and, and looking back into history and then kind of leapfrogging into where we are, what can we expect now? How might God make known to people who Jesus really is. Well, we've got a question hanging in the air. Probably the best thing we can do right now is to, is to pause and pray. Let's do that. Lord, we humbly bow down, Lord. And we come into your presence. We come into uh, contact with your, with your word. Lord, we confess we are small and we are simple. And we confess that we trust you, Lord God, to impart light and understanding to us just, just because we've simply come and humbly come. Lord, maintain us, please, God, in that, in that humility and in that receptive and expectant posture to your word and the leading of your Holy Spirit. Lord, do a great work amongst us, not because we are a great people, but because you are a great God. Grant us sanctuary here in this moment. Shut down the distractions and shut off the voice of the enemy. Lord, bear witness in every saved and redeemed heart and spirit here today through your word, through your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, historically. Okay, so let's get a little piece of history. It is the 15th of December. I realize that. It's right here on my watch. We're 10 days till Christmas. Ho, 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 and good luck getting the rest of your Christmas shopping done. So if we're looking into history and asking, how has God made people aware of who Jesus really is? What do you say we take the several months before Jesus was born and the several months after and see what sort of methods the Lord employed? In the months leading up to Jesus' birth, who do you reckon knew better than anybody else? Mary. Yeah, it was plenty obvious to her. And with the visitation of the angel, she knew what was going on. Joseph also had a visitation from an angel. Okay, Zechariah, he had a visitation from an angel, kind of put him on to what was going to be happening through the birth of his own son, John the Baptist. Oh, and by the way, Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, She also was in the know. It became obvious to her as she was carrying her son, John the Baptist, and as she met up with her cousin Mary, who would be carrying the Christ child. So in the months leading up, you had had four people. And sometimes I wonder if Zechariah just wasn't lost in the weeds, really. But it wasn't a lot. Well, think about that night in Bethlehem. And Joseph and Mary are there, and the Christ child comes. Who knew? Shepherds knew. They also had a visitation from an angel and the multitude of the heavenly hosts. So, whoa, they're in the know. They go to Bethlehem. They find the little family right there. And so they, they begin telling people, but is this a mass awareness of who Jesus really is? Not quite yet. Forty days after the birth of Jesus, there was Simeon in the temple courts and Anna, the prophetess. 
And maybe people were looking on going, what's up with Simeon doing this like Lion King thing? Oh, Lord, you now have let your servant depart in peace as you have promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. But it wasn't exactly a billboard. It didn't exactly travel with the speed of the Internet, did it? Some months later, we're going to wrap up this piece of history, this snapshot of history. Some months later, the Magi, the wise men from the east, they find the little family. And as they came through Jerusalem, the wise men, that is, they caused quite a stir. But still the people didn't know which baby boy they were supposed to worship as the newborn king. So word's getting out for sure. But there seems to be this thing God's using. He's employed many, many tactics here and some things that are just unheard of. And then it's like he just pulls the plug on the whole campaign. Grab that Bible you got, right? We're going to go to Matthew. Super easy to find. First book of the New Testament. And we're going to find this place where it, it seems like God just puts the brakes on this, this awareness of who his son is. If you look at Matthew 2, 13, it says, Now when they, meaning the, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. It looks like with all this buildup, with the angels and the magi and all that, like God, God just suddenly shut off the switch, like, whoa, and off into Egypt goes this little family. And you know what happens after this in the life of Jesus is 30 years of obscurity. Well, did God's plan fall apart? Did it fail? No. Thanks, Roy. <laughs> it did not. <laughs> I have a theory. I'm pretty sure God was checking to see who was paying attention. There, there's more to this. Now, last week, last week, <laughs> Andrew mentions kind of a, almost, an, almost an, an anger, like an aggravation that arises around Christmas time. I'd probably characterize it as like a frustration. It seems to be a product of the season. It's almost like everything we need to know about Jesus can be had in the first chapter and a half of Matthew, the first chapter and a half of Luke. And we do that at Christmas time, and then we shut it down, and 12 months later, there it goes again. It circulates around. There's so much more of Jesus to be found. Look what God did there in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus went, has this ever occurred to you? He went from superstar to refugee, quite literally, overnight. So will we or will we not be among the people who are paying attention? That's, that's an important thing to figure out. So we're going to keep on going and keep flipping pages here in the Gospel of, of Matthew. If you look into chapter 3, Jesus surfaces briefly at his baptism, no pun intended, and then right after his baptism, he is led by the Spirit off into the wilderness. Let me get out of lights here, right? Fading off into the wilderness for that period of time to be tempted by the devil. And after that, off into Galilee he goes. You don't go to Galilee unless you've got a pretty good reason. And apparently God's reasoning there was to have Jesus out of the mainstream for yet a little while longer. And again, the question is, who's paying attention? 
So off there in Galilee, Jesus begins, he, he calls his first disciples, and he begins his ministry of teaching and healing. And it's starting to build as big as things can build in Galilee, and it's starting to draw attention. You go to Matthew 4, 25. And it says this. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, now we're rolling. Now we got something going on here. This thing's getting, getting moving. In chapters 5 through 7, that comes Sermon on the Mount. That was Jesus' core teaching, which he would like put on repeat for the next three years. All right, so we're up through chapter 7. We're still flipping pages in the Gospel of Matthew. Take a quick peek at Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is healing like crazy. Look at the 17th verse of Matthew 8, and it says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And just when you're thinking that that would be good news enough, like they say in the infomercials, no, there's more. In Matthew chapter 9, there is as great a revelation of who Jesus really is as anything that had happened up to that point. As you look into Matthew chapter 9, first eight verses of that chapter, see if you can spot what it is. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. That would be Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. How is it that Jesus brings people into an awareness of who he really is? Let's unpack this, this passage here. First thing, in case you were wondering, yeah, this is the same, same paralyzed man who had been let down through the roof. You read about him in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. And when you read those gospel accounts of the same incident, a big deal is made about, about the roof, okay? Don't worry about the roof. The sweet spot here in Matthew chapter 9 is that we get to concentrate more on Jesus and we get to focus more on his interaction, not only with the paralyzed man and the, and the four friends, but also with the scribes and, and the rest of the crowd who were pressed into this house. Now watch how Jesus brings everybody into an, into an awareness of who he is. The man is let down through the roof. Here he is. Obviously, he's paralyzed. The first thing Jesus says is the last thing anybody could have said. He looks at him and he says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, will you please try to be totally honest with me? The first time you read through Matthew chapter 9, were you expecting Jesus to say, your legs are fixed? Your spinal cord is made whole. Spit on the ground, make some mud and rub it, I don't know where. But, you know, do something like that. Obviously, the biggest problem here was that the man was paralyzed. 
Jesus saw right through that. No, that wasn't the biggest problem. And it wasn't the only work to be done in that setting. See what happened next? The scribes began thinking, didn't say it out loud, but they began thinking, this man is blaspheming. Why would they think that? Because they knew only God can forgive sins. And they were right. Huh. So this sets up a tension. Jesus knows their thoughts, and he makes an out loud comment on them. Ha, ah, terrifying, right? Yes. So he makes this out loud comment. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? Oh, now, now you show me. Here's, here's audience participation. You show me what the rest of the crowd was doing at that point. Packed into this house, we've just had this boom, collision between Jesus and the scribes. They're on the edge of their seat. They're like, move up there, right. And they're leaning forward. They got a hand cupped to an ear. Shh. Where's this going? Where's this going? Jesus sets up this tension here. He had referred to the paralytic as my son. Oh, my son. Are you kidding me? Jesus was like 30 years old. Not a lot of people in that crowd he could say my son to, and it make a lot of sense, really. Oh, wait, unless, unless that prophecy from Isaiah 9 was being fulfilled in their midst. Let's see, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So added to the tension of this collision between Jesus and the scribes is this thing right here, like, oh, what's this? What's this my son? What's this Everlasting Father all about? Jesus had referred to himself as Son of Man. Now, standing here in 21st century United States of America, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it did to them. That term right there, son of man, in that setting, was a showstopper. That was a put the brakes on it, shut up, don't say anything else, anybody but this guy here who calls himself son of man. For centuries, they had known of Daniel's prophecy and his vision. Son of man is the one who came to the ancient of days. And in Daniel 7:14 it says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, this is why people just didn't walk all over Palestine and Galilee going, "Hey, I'm son of man, pleased to meet you." Because that term meant something. That term was like an atomic bomb in this setting. Who? What happened next? The people were afraid. What were they afraid of? Well, right here on the page, they were afraid of it. <laughs> what, was, what was it? When the people saw it, they were afraid. What was it? Was it that a paralyzed man suddenly got up and walked? I was part of it, but it was near, not nearly the biggest part of it. See all this coming to, mm, coming to a head. What they were afraid of is that they suddenly realized not only was the kingdom of heaven very near, but the king himself. If they could have remembered right in that moment, they could absolutely have taken the words of Isaiah in his vision in Isaiah 6, chapter 6 and said, 
Woe is me, for I am undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. They could absolutely have said that in that moment right there. Because all of a sudden, all of a sudden, here he was. They had run smack into Jesus, employing his favorite tactic of revelation. You see, Jesus is Lord of the gotcha. He is the expert, and his favorite tactic of revelation is to bring this sudden awareness. Why were the scribes there? I mean, they're in the house in Capernaum. Such a crowd. I mean, you had to have pretty good tickets, right, to get in here. Obviously, the paralyzed guy, they couldn't get him in through the house, so they let him in through the roof. Why were the scribes there? If you'd think, oh, if there are people more receptive to the gospel, it would have been better for them to be there than the scribes. Why were the scribes there? They brought truth. They were the ones who knew only God can forgive sins. That's why they were there. I'll tell you why else they were there. Because the revelation of Jesus as who he really is was just as available to them as it was to anybody else. Was Jesus just using them to bring the facts to light? Oh, facts, sure, that's great, but a lot more. Are you thinking maybe the scribes were there just because they had to be the token knuckleheads in this scene? I looked into into seven different commentaries. Getting this ready for today? Every commentator presented the scribes as the knuckleheads. But what do you think, really? Did Jesus need them to look bad so he could look good? That's a cowardly tactic. Jesus doesn't need that. The scribes brought that truth. They brought that knowledge. As far as pure knowledge goes, they had more of it than anybody else in that bunch other than Jesus himself. You see, everybody came to Capernaum with, with, everybody came to Capernaum with, a, with a preconceived notion. You saw it through, through, through the earlier chapters of Matthew. Jesus wore that title, great healer, great teacher, all that. And everybody came there. Some came to see the teacher. Some came to see the healer. The, the, some came to see Jesus, the rabble rouser, for that matter. And everybody saw all of that, but what nobody expected was to run face first into the king. Even the scribes who brought this knowledge, knowing that only God can forgive sins, they didn't expect to run face first into the forgiver of sins right there. And everybody's startled in that moment, so they're absolutely brought into sudden awareness. Gotcha. Now, what happened with this encounter, especially with the scribes? I don't know. I don't know. I looked for Matthew chapter 9 and a half, and I didn't find it. It's not in there. As my friend Herb said just yesterday, you know, a lot of those gospel stories are open-ended. Yes, they are. And I kind of wish, you know, I had, had the, 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 the Hollywood kind of wrap it up for every, every gospel story there is. Well, it's there somewhere, just not yet. In the meantime, ask yourself this. Did Jesus ever, ever, ever capture anybody else by way of the gotcha? Would you like to ask Nicodemus next time you run into him? How about Paul, whose name used to be Saul? Everybody who was there was there on purpose. 
They just didn't discover their purpose until Jesus made it clear to them. Now, these, these eight verses, all right, in Matthew chapter 9, they consist of 152 words. I did not count them up. That's Microsoft Word. That's it. 152 words. I'm going to give you three, three words, your choice, three consecutive words that you believe are the most thrilling in that whole passage. What would you pick? Rise and walk? Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. Sins are forgiven? Oh, great choice. Can I pick three now? You may know. That's it. <laughs> that just, it may, I'm wanting to laugh, honestly. You may know, and I'm trying to cry at the same time. You may know. Really? Oh, thank you, Jesus. You may know. You may know who the Son of Man is. You may know that he went to the Ancient of Days, and he was given a kingdom that will never come to an end. You may know that he has power on earth to forgive sins. You may know that he has power on earth to heal diseases. You may know. I hope the people there that day grabbed on to those three words that you may know. The most thrilling thing in this passage is Jesus doesn't play peekaboo with the truth. When the Lord draws you into an encounter with him, it's not to make you look like an idiot. I can look like an idiot all on my own. It's so you can have more of him. That you may know. That you may have the realization of who, who he is. You may know, even if he employs the gotcha to make it happen. At Christmas time, we know, we know G- gentle Jesus, meek and mild, away in a manger, got all that. Huh. At Easter time, sure, we know Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. On any particular day, we might expect to encounter Jesus, the teacher, especially on, on a Sunday. And when our faith is really perky, we might even expect to run into Jesus, the healer. Church, there is, there is a role and a title and, 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 an, and an aspect of Jesus just as important as anything else. And I'm convinced we know almost nothing about it. And that would be Jesus, the bridegroom. We got the parables, invite all the men, you know, the hedges and the highways and the byways and all that, compel them to come in to the great feast. We have the parables. We have in the book of the Revelation some idea of what the wedding supper of the, of the, of the Lamb is going to be. But honestly, I think we got very little knowledge of Jesus or very little awareness of Jesus as the bridegroom, beginning with this right here. Do you know he's the bridegroom right now he put down the bride price for us a long time ago mine Ephesians 5 verse 25 Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. There's coming a time when the Lord will present the church to himself as his bride in perfect condition. No spot, no wrinkle, no such thing as that. And you know what? Even as I'm saying, it's glorious, sure. And at the same time, I'm like, I'm like intimidated. I'm almost like brought low because I'm wondering, is this church like that right now? I'll lighten the load a little bit. There's a Nazarene church almost within sight of us down the road here. Is that church like that right now? Not us, not them. Churches uptown. No, no way. A cobblestone. If there were even one church anywhere on the planet at this moment ready to be presented to Christ as his bride, I would expect you to be on your way there. I would be. But it's not time yet. Therefore, think on this. Between right now and when Jesus presents the church to himself as his bride, does he have, does he have some work to do? For sure. Some days I'm embarrassed at how much work he has still to do before that time comes to completion. Maybe that's why we don't think much on Jesus as the bridegroom. Churches change. And that's not by default, that's by the Lord's design himself. Don't worry about the church that's changing. Worry about the church that's not. The sanctifying work is going on, and it will be ongoing until the very, very, very end. Cobblestone is not the same church it was 19 years ago. I was around for that, and a handful of others. I can tell you, not the same church it was 19 years ago. Glory, hallelujah, some things are the same. We had Jesus then. We have Jesus now. That's the one and only claim we really want to make. But other than Jesus, we got guitars and coffee and a handful of charter members. And all of that, other than Jesus, is expendable. You're worried about the coffee. Don't worry about the coffee. A lot of things have changed. The church is much different. Most of the changes worth making were hard, and they were frightening. And sometimes we went down the wrong road for a while. And it took us a little bit of time to realize, whoa, I missed some critical word or some critical syllable somewhere along the way. And we go, wait a minute, was that a do or a do not? I don't know. Let's back up and retool and listen better. It hasn't been this, this linear thing. The Lord has taken us through some variations, and that in itself has been, has been part of the sanctifying work. Cobblestone is changing right now. And, and as it was with the people in Capernaum, it generates some uneasiness and, and, even, and even some fear. Some precious souls right here in this body of Christ are worried that, that Cobblestone will become a hair-on-fire, emotion-driven church. Other precious souls are worried that we will miss the Spirit's leading altogether. 
I'd say there's, there's a general uneasiness that in this quest to be taught by the word and led by, and led by the spirit that we'll go careening off to one extreme or the other. That is not the Lord's plan for us. It is not the Lord's plan for us. Can I tell you one quick thing about the extremes while I lay this phone on? There's a story behind why that phone was still in my back pocket, but I don't have time to tell you. Anyway, the Lord's not taking us to, to, to either of those extremes. I'm going to tell you something you already know about the extremes. You just needed a reminder. Do you know what all the extremes have in common? They're 99% wrong. You could be talking about churches or politics or economics or making chocolate chip cookies. What the extremes have always had in common is they're 99% wrong. The extremes cling to 1% of something out there on the edge and can't really claim to be 2% right. And if you think about it, out there on the thin edges, there's 1% of something pretty much everywhere. But let me ask this. When the Lord finishes all of this sanctifying work, when he presents the bride to himself in splendor, do you think she'll look anything like any of the extremes? If we trust him to do his work, then we may absolutely trust him to teach the, the bride, his church, everything she needs to know. Everything. I'm not talking about a comfortable compromise. I don't expect, I don't even want it to be comfortable. But I am talking about the Lord faithfully, constantly, consistently bringing us into the depth and beauty of his truth. The spirit of our living God. <laughs> I love this about the Lord. It goes to and fro looking for preconceived notions and complacency. Sticks a crowbar under it, pries that puppy out. I'll give you this, though. Do you know what puts the brakes on Jesus' sanctifying work in a church? Wiggling out from under his scrub brush. Making like that little kid who says, no, I really would rather keep on smelling like earthworms and dirty feet. Don't need no bath. Puts the brakes on the Lord's sanctifying work in a church. And do you know what brings a halt to Jesus' sanctifying work in a church? Denying that he has the right to do it. And I keep praying, Lord, for sure don't let us be caught in that second category. And Lord, show us how to mm, stay put and stick around for the, for, the, for the scrubbing, for the having those spots rubbed out, having those wrinkles smoothed over. Let Jesus do that work where he brings this bride into her fullness. Not a, a lopsided and deformed thing, but in splendor. Don't worry about the church that's changing. Worry about the church that is not. We're in December of 2019. We are just about in what? However many days? 16 days. We will finish up the year called Fearless. To which I say, whoop de dang do. Whatever. You know? <laughs> 
Fearless means nothing. Fearless means nothing at all. It's purely hypothetical. doesn't mean a daggone thing unless and until you put yourself or find yourself in a place to be fearful. Speaking as one who scares himself often, a lot, on purpose, I can tell you it's purely hypothetical until it gets tested. I kind of had a notion a year ago when we chose this, this word, fearless, as a theme for 2019. Thought, oh, we're asking for it. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. Did we really think the Lord would let us get through 2019 without declaring where we would place our trust? He's asking us, where will we place our trust? Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses, Psalm 20 says. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And we will ascribe to him every bit of authority he has. How much would that be? All of it. Every bit of the authority he has to do what he wants with his church. Look at what we've encountered just in this room today by way of the gotcha. Claire thought she was in the car by herself. Nope. Paul and Laurel work among people who have waited 20 centuries to have a Bible in their language. 20 centuries. Now they have a Bible in their language. Gotcha. Do you think after waiting 2,000 years they would have expected something like that to happen? No, the king came near and used his people to work this sudden awareness of how powerful and glorious and loving the king is. And he'll do it again in this place. And again and again and again and again until he's made us ready to be presented to himself without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. He's at it. And he's the best. He will continue to be the Lord of the gotcha until that final one big old gotcha to end old gotchas, and, the, and they're not even, not even necessary anymore. Mm. Will we trust him? I, I say, let's go. Let's trust him. You know, it's funny that, that I'm standing here doing this when Nor- Andrew would normally be standing here doing this. There's, kind of, there's this thing I have said for a few years, at least. I, I say to people, you know, Andrew and me, it takes both of us to make one good pastor. <laughs> and that, that has been true for a long time, uh, sort of, mostly true. It takes a lot more than me and him. It takes the rest of the elders, all of us together, to make even one good pastor And it takes all of us, the body of Christ, all fully functioning, doing the things God calls us to do in this body for us to to be about this thing and to encounter the Lord and what he's doing in our church. Since it's Christmas time, Randall and bring the band back up. Make ready for a a time for you to respond. Maybe maybe the Lord worked and got you on you right here this morning. (laughs) Wouldn't be out of character for him. Wouldn't be out of character at all. For the season's sake, will you permit me one bit of sentimentality? Okay? <laughs> about the king and about this whole gotcha thing, permit me this one thing. I, I know preachers have been quoting Mr. Beaver since before I was born from Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, didn't see that coming either, did you? Speaking of the king, Mr. Beaver said, 
oh, he's not safe. But he's good. Jesus, our Lord, our bridegroom, is good. He will not take us to these fringes where it's so easy to fall off, where the ride is so rough. He will lead us into the beauty and depth of his truth. Let's walk together and trust him. I'm going to pray, and the, and the worship team is going to play. And there will be prayer counselors up here. The prayer room is open. Elders milling around through the room. If the Lord is working a gotcha on you, or if you might want to participate with him in the gotcha, like put yourself in the path of, okay, what happens next? Then stick around. I know you've got to get the kids and all that. But please don't leave here without doing the work the Lord wants to do with you today. Let's pray. Lord, we'll lay this whole thing at your feet. <laughs> the word, the spirit, <laughs> all of it right here. Everything you've brought to us, oh Lord, right here. Every thought we've had, every preconceived notion, every bit of enthusiasm and every bit of complacency, oh Lord, we bring it right here and lay it at your feet. Trusting you to do a great work. Trusting you, oh Lord, to make us ready. Ready. Ready for you to receive us. Oh, you're perfecting even now. Your word is living and active. Your spirit is alive and flowing out from believers like streams of living water. Lord, do your great work. Do your great work. Whatever needs turned around right now, whatever needs scrubbed out. We are here, and we're here gladly, gladly. Hold us close to you. Sanctify and perfect your bride. We offer ourselves up to you in your name.